This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm head of programming, Connor Boyle. Coming up, Chris Anderson. He's a name many already know, but if you don't, you surely come across a few ideas he's helped put out into the world. Chris is head of TED Talks, the ideas platform that's been a go-to for some of the world's most influential thinkers to stage presentations for the last two decades. He has a new book which draws from some of those learnings in order to spread a bit more of an idea in short supply in recent years, Optimism. Infectious Generosity is the name of the book, and in it, Chris offers his thoughts and real-world case studies showing how a more generous outlook can make small changes which lead to big ones. This conversation is a recording of our Intelligence Squared event at London's Union Chapel recently, and joining Chris on stage to discuss the book and his work was someone open to ideas at the more unusual end of the scale, John Ronson. John is the writer and podcaster behind books that have set the agenda in exploring the post-internet age, including The Psychopath Test, The Men Who Stare at Goats, and So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Most recently, you might know John from the hit podcast, Things Fell Apart, which explores the stories and history of the culture wars. It's a great discussion coming up, and Chris and John had so much to fit in, so this is coming to you in two parts. Did you know, if you're an Intelligence Squared member though, you can get both parts right now. No waiting around, just head to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up, and you'll get the extended version of this chat, plus all our premium extra content and ad-free listening too. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. But now let's join John Ronson speaking to the head of TED, Chris Anderson, about infectious generosity and much more. Thank you so much for coming, everybody. Hello. Um, I'd, I'd like to introduce Chris Anderson, um, who's the, the head of TED. Um, under Chris's stewardship, um, there's been more than 2,500 talks and lessons released free uh, on the TED website with 100,000 more on YouTube. Yada, yada. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> I, I went to... Um, <laughs> I met Chris for the first time in 2012. I was invited to give a TED talk about psychopaths in Long Beach. And, um, no, not, not psychopaths in Long Beach. No, yeah. although God the knows with a, yeah. people who come to, <laughs> business yeah. leaders who come to your, come to TED, I mean, Jesus. Fine, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yes. Um, <laughs> It was very exciting. I, I, um, I felt for the first time that I was in a room where, you know, partly because of the interesting people on the stage with all of their interesting ideas and then the incredibly powerful people in the audience, the Bill Gateses and the Larry Pages. You know, this, this, what was happening in that room that week had the potential to change the world a little bit for the better, is what I thought. 
And, and I think the world did change a little bit that week. Uh, Susan Cain gave a very famous talk about introverts mm. um, and about how to make the workplace more introvert-friendly. What I remember about that was um, Chris got up on stage after Susan Cain gave her talk about introverts and basically said, everybody give Susan Cain another round of applause because as an introvert, it must be so hard to be on this stage and talk in front of all these thousands of people. And when he said that, I, I thought, when I was talking to Susan Cain backstage, I was the one who was so nervous that I destroyed my lanyard, yet <laughs> nobody gave me an extra round of applause. <laughs> I, could, could we correct that right now, actually? John Ronson, <laughs> oh, he's amazing. You guys. Um, the other thing that happened, the other really noticeable thing that happened that week was, was Brian Stevenson, the civil rights mm. lawyer, gave a talk that just like blew the room away and, could, and I think probably completely changed his life. You got up on stage afterwards and said, okay, who's going to donate to Brian Stevenson's, um, who's going to give a million dollars? And all of these hands were like, <laughs> and I was like, shit, John, I fucking don't, don't scratch your nose. Um, anyway, the reason why I say all of that is because Chris is in a world where, where things do change as a result. And, it's, and I think there's a world in which Chris is our new book, Infectious Generosity, which is fascinating and sometimes provocative. I, mean, I think we'll get into some of the provocative stuff a little bit later. Um, if it's implemented by regular users and tech utopians and heads of industry, the world could change a little bit for the better. So I thought we could start, uh, I've, I've given just a couple of paragraphs, if you just wanted to read a couple of paragraphs for the introduction, which just really lays, it just kind of stakes the book's claim. Thank you, John. It's so nice to see everyone here, honestly. At London, I love being back here. Okay. One of the surprises of the internet age is that generous acts can often turn out to be the smartest, most satisfying decisions an organization can make. We're taught to think of generosity as an act done purely for selfless reasons, but I'll make the case that it can be much more than that. Today, more than ever, the decision to be generous can simultaneously be an act of sacrifice and, profoundly, an act in the long-term self-interest of the giver. The people who are generous are the people who will come to enjoy the deepest happiness, and the companies and organizations that are generous are the companies and organizations that will own the future. I think I should stop there. I think, okay. I think that's, that's, you know, it needs justifying, that's the thing. It doesn't sound credible by itself. I'd, if I was in the audience, I'd be going, come on, that's ridiculous. Well, that's hopefully what we're going to be doing over the next <laughs> hour and 20 minutes, is, is justify those, that idea. Um, okay, so most of this conversation will be about Chris's ideas for how to put things right. But as you say in the book, if we're going to figure that out, then it's also important to figure out what went wrong and mm. why. And you, more than almost anyone on earth, has had very close access to all of the major architects of the internet. Everyone from Larry Page to Elon Musk have given TED Talks, and I'm sure you know a lot of them personally as well. Um, so what is it about their characters and their business plans that led to the chaos that we now live in? So it's, it's a painful and important question. Um, I have been a tech optimist most of my life, actually, and, and certainly in the 90s and in the aughts, 
I was all in on the internet. It was humankind's greatest invention ever. Hello, it connected everyone on the planet. We could see each other for the first time. We could therefore come to learn each other's stories. Divisions were going to be reduced, and uh, history, the arc of history was going to arc in the right direction. Thank you, internet. And then, starting around about 2010, maybe 2013, we've, we've entered this decade of just crushing dismay, disappointment. Um, it's been horrible. And yeah, I had a front row seat of a, of a lot of it. it I think this, the single biggest thing that has gone wrong is social media. I don't think it was a giant evil conspiracy of a bunch of people behind doors saying, we've got a great plan to get rich, let's do all these ads and hook people and turn them into evil people. I think it was a screw-up. I think it was a monumental screw-up um, caused by a naive view of human nature. I think a lot of the designers of the internet kind of grew up hippie generation, you know, people are basically good, um, if we could just empower people, what could go wrong? And so social media platforms were designed to say, hey, here's an idea. Let's build super powerful algorithms that notice what people click on and do and how long their eyeballs stay on certain things. And let's optimize our content so that those things get amplified. We're maximizing user choice. What could possibly go wrong? And what could possibly go wrong is that people aren't just good. We're complicated. We have we have goodness in all of us. We also have instincts, really strong instincts, that can be triggered and turned ugly very quickly. Um, Danny Kahneman, the psychologist, talks in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, it talks about our system one and system two thinking. System one is our instinctive selves, system two is our reflective selves. The social media platforms are designed for system one, also known as our lizard brains. Um, it's our lizard brain that clicks on like and is, is addicted to doom scrolling. Um, so if you amplify that, and the algorithms have done a brilliant job of amplifying that and grabbing our attention, the trouble is that we have amplified the voices of those who know how to trigger lizard brains. And the way you trigger a lizard brain is to present a threat. That's what we evolved to do. That's how we survived. We're very, very, very good at spotting threats. And so, we have come, and social media has played a terrifyingly powerful role in doing this, as seeing the world as full of threat, and it's dividing us into tribes who distrust and hate each other, and I'm terrified by it. I'm terrified by it. You said that you don't think any of this was deliberate, and really they were just focused, they were young people wanted to focus on just building cool stuff. And that is borne out in some ways by you know, something that uh, Jack Dorsey said quite recently. I heard an interview with him where he said, oh, maybe we should have, at the beginning of Twitter, maybe we should have employed some social scientists to model how this might go. And when I heard that, I thought, you think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that does speak to a kind of almost childlike naivety, like children crawling towards a gun. Um, but, I'm, but I think there was something more nefarious at work too, I should say. You know, I, I saw the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Yeah. And there's a moment in that documentary where they say that they presented Larry Page with data saying, look, look what this is doing. It's making people more addicted. And he turned the other way. And I, and I know that, you know, Twitter hates, so you've been publicly shamed. Like somebody, a friend of mine asked Megan Phelps Roper, 
um, was on a call with them with Twitter and they wanted her to give a talk because she was de-radicalized. She was part of the Westboro Baptist Church and she went on Twitter to like proselytize and Twitter changed her mind. Twitter de-radicalized her. Yeah. So that was a great Twitter story. So they were on the phone with her wanting her to give a talk and she said, uh, well, why don't you ask John Ronson to give a talk? And she said, when, they, when she said my name, everyone else on the call went very quiet. <laughs> so this speaks to you know, something more nefarious than, than naivety. It speaks to looking the other way. It also speaks to an ideology. The internet was built by libertarians who just didn't want any restrictions on their machines. The machines must be allowed to flourish however the machine can, and any restrictions is, is bad. I mean, there's definitely a school of thought that is libertarian. There's definitely a commercial issue, which is that this has been phenomenally successful as a business model. You've been able to monetize all that attention with, with ad revenue. But I'm not willing to give up on the internet, no. And, I, and I've talked to a lot of people inside these companies who are also not willing to give up. Inside each of these companies, there is a huge debate going on because most people, most of the people who actually create value in the companies, AKA anyone who can code or do anything creative, doesn't want to work for an evil company. Yeah. They don't. And so, they, so they, they are trying to figure out what it is that they could do that would ease the problem. And the tr trouble is it's not, it's not obvious. It really isn't obvious how you fix this stuff because they are going with human choices. Mm. It's, it's humans, you know, they have empowered us to do this to each other. And it's, it's quite hard to say, you know, what do you do? Do you, sh if you, if you take a bunch of people offline who are being really nasty, then you're violating free speech. It's not like there's an easy way. What, but I do think there, there is a way and, you know, it, 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 it fundamentally comes to figuring out how you use the algorithms to connect with our reflective selves instead of our instinctive selves. Give that some power. That will actually create platforms that people are proud of having on their phone, are excited to have as part of their life instead of it being this, I don't know if you feel this, but I, I'm simultaneously addicted to social media to some extent. And some of it I love, but partly I come off it and go, yeah, you know, did I really do that? Did I spend all that time? I, th there's a pathway where you could have a service that gets past quite a bit of that. And, and if they can do that, they may take a short-term profits hit. Long-term, things are going to be better. So I, I refuse to give up on this. If you give up, John, we're done. Like, as I, I genuinely believe that we will not solve any of the other problems facing us if we can't figure out how to rebuild a little bit of trust, a little bit of belief in humanity, I, I think this is an existential problem. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I didn't write this book to be, oh, let's have a little kumbaya kindness. I'm really worried, and I, and I think we have to fight back against the toxic memes and nastiness that is spreading online with trying to make the good stuff compelling. That's what it boils down to. And happily, much of your book is dedicated to practical ways to, to do that. Um, and the good news, as you say, is that people are very worried and are craving for ways to connect. So there is a receptive audience out there, not just within the tech companies, but also within the, the users of the internet. You know, I, I put out the show, Things Fell Apart, um, to the BBC, and, and the, in the first season, the, the, the episode that 
people really loved was the episode about connection, about two warring factions, mm. uh, a, past, a, a pastor with AIDS going on the chat show of a televangelist. And the whole point of that story was, a, was, a, was about how wars can end and people can come together. And that was the episode that really moved people more than any other. So I think, yeah, people are sick of, of, of all the horror and are looking for some kind of connection. So I think this book is coming out at, at a good time. <laughs> Um, you, you've definitely you've documented the issues better than anyone. I mean, you've, you've been right in there. You've seen the damage that it can cause someone, how shaming can ruin someone's life, and how the right kind of bridging can... I mean, it takes a lot of courage, and it takes a lot of wisdom to figure out the right way to do it. But it can actually happen, and when it does, wow. Yeah, and actually later on, there's the, the, I'd say the clearly most provocative part of your book is making an argument, and it's a very nuanced argument, but you're making an argument that the surveillance culture on the internet, feeling that you're being watched, feeling that if you do the wrong thing can get you publicly shamed, has its upsides. And, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, I think. OK, uh, for it later. I think save it for later. Because, I mean, I did think it was fascinating. And, uh, you know, the, much of your argument, I, I think, has, has a lot of merit, but I want to push back on some of it. Um, but before we do that, um, the business model of giving things away. You start the book um, with something very interesting from your own life. Um, you say sensibly that, that generosity is in the self-interest of the person being generous, and that's a point that you make over and over again, which I think is a really good and interesting point. Because um, you say, look, if you do this, this will benefit you in ways that you don't even realise. Um, and, and by the way, people hearing that, some people will be going, ew, that's not what I think of as generosity. That's, that's, mm. that's just transactional stuff. Generosity is supposed to just be for generosity's sake. And, mm. and, and I actually think it's a, like, it's a really, really important point to debate because um, you know, the, the argument is, is that in this connected age, there is always stuff that comes back. If we use that as a reason to snark about someone's generosity, we're done, we're gonna find nothing good in anyone. And, and actually, we should celebrate it. Generosity is often, like it's hard to do short-term. Long-term, in this connected age, it can bring back huge, huge benefits, mm. including reputation, including many other things. Um, and so, you can point to mixed motivation, we should not, we should celebrate it. And so, yes, it's in people's long-term interest to be generous, that doesn't mean it's easy to do in the moment. Yes. No, I thought, you, I thought that was a very good thing that you do in your book, is saying this isn't some sort of hippie wellness right. bullshit. Right. This is actually something that can benefit you, both in terms of your mental health and also in terms of your business. And, and I thought that was you know, a good and interesting point. Um, and one of the ways that you talk about that is what you did with TED. You, um, at the beginning of TED, you... Um, um, realised that you could broadcast the videos on the internet and you decided to do that for, for free. And then you went even further and you gave away the whole brand. You, you gave everybody in the world the opportunity to host their own TED event. Those were big, there must have been opposition and you must have thought this could go, you know, yeah. terribly wrong. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was a little scary. Um, TED, back in early 2000s, was a, was a once-a-year conference, technology, entertainment, design. Um, I took it over with a, through a foundation that had some money in it. 
very exciting to do, but we, we spent a long time trying to figure out how to get it out there in the world. When online video came along, there was a chance to do it, but there was a risk that if we put them out there, it would kill the conference. Mm. And so, yeah, it the felt... only money you were making, I guess, was people conference paying tickets. to go to the conference. No, I, 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 absolutely. Um, but we were a non-profit, felt like the right thing to do. We did it, we'd listened to TED Talks, we'd drunk the Kool-Aid. The internet wants stuff to be free, so we put it out there, and to our amazement, um, demand for the conference rose, because these talks went, went viral. And, and so, yeah, so since then, this idea of in the connected age, give it away and be amazed at what happens next became, I would say, our strategy. Radical generosity, our strategy. And, and the argument of the book is that that is a strategy that any individual can apply and any organization can apply. And it's, 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 it's so beautiful when it works. So the TEDx thing, we gave away the brand, Harvard Business Review wrote this article, how Ted lost control of its crowd, ha ha. Um, they were right, and some really embarrassing things happened, and it was great. There were some crazy TEDx talks. There were some crazy <laughs> and embarrassing TEDx talks. We were ashamed. I was <laughs> taunted on, on Twitter yeah. and elsewhere. But you must have had some, you must have had some um, guardrails, like if something was especially nuts, it, it wouldn't no, go online. We, we have policies against pseudoscience, and you know, religion and so forth being used in, in, in TED. It wasn't the platform for that. And sometimes those things were ignored. Mm. Um, but, the, but, the, but the amazing thing is that the vast majority of events were loved by people. The talks mm. were great. And you end, we ended up with 3,000 of these teams around the world. So right now, I mean, TED is 200 people in New York, employees. And more than 60,000 volunteers around the world. Translators and... Translators and TEDx organizers putting, doing stuff for us out of their own love of ideas. It's, it's, it's incredible and it's only happened because we decided to give stuff away. Mm. Um, and most of these events are loved, get 25,000 videos a year from it. Many of the best, your favorite TED speakers came up through TEDx. Renee Brown. Yeah, Brené Brown, Simon Sinek, um, many, many, many of, of like people who we would never have dared to put on stage turn out to be amazing. Um, and um, so I just, it just, if, even if TED hadn't been a nonprofit, if it had been a business, this would have been the smartest possible thing we could have done. And so it just, it just really hit me how, because we're connected, all of these things can happen when you give something away. One, it can spread to an indefinite number of people. Two, the total cost of that distribution is zero. That's unbelievable. And three, these gifts carry with them reputation. Mm. So it's, it, they're a complete game changer. And, and ripples too. And by the way, can I ask, like financially giving stuff away, I mean, does that mean that Ted made, like, Billions. <laughs> no. So, so you, have to be, you have to think about it and do it, and do it smart. Like, there are some things you could give away that would destroy your business. In the case of, of TEDx, the licenses are free, um, didn't charge for them. What we do get is rights to the videos. So the event organizers upload the videos on YouTube. There is some ad revenue from those videos. That comes to TED. That plays for part of the cost of the program. The rest is funded mostly philanthropically by people who just like the idea of us having all these events around the world. Mm. Um, and, but you have, to, you have to, you know, when we said with TEDx, it works because of rules and tools. Um, rules on how you have to use the format, tools on 
just encouraging people, here is how you put on a good event. This is all we know. Take this knowledge and, and run with it. And I think any, any act, I mean, I, I really encourage in the book anyone to spend, if you're an organizational company, or even as an individual or family, spend a day brainstorming. What is the most radical thing we could give away? And um, uh, but be smart about it. And you may be amazed at what happens next. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this is your advice to, to creators. Um, give, you say this in the book, give away your best thing. Yeah. And it's really hard for creators because there are a lot of creators out there who are fighting tooth and nail just to survive, just to pay the rent. And, well, and right, because, you know, as we know, in capitalism, people are bastards. And, and just look at what's happening on, <laughs> on Spotify. I mean, you know, they just want to rip you off. I mean, I'm not saying Spotify in particular, to, but just the general model of, you know, getting tiny royalties for... I know things were maybe a bit too bloated in the old DVD days, but, yeah. you, you know, now people want... There's, there's a lot of sharks out there who will exploit that generosity. There are. And there are a lot of people who, as a receiver of all this content, we may feel they're just an influencer using gross tactics to try and get my attention and to win 
money from sponsors. That definitely, we've moved so quickly into a world in which there's this inpouring of amazing free stuff. Mm. And, and so I think a few things. I think one thing, just take a moment to be amazed by that. I mean, it, it is incredible what you have access to right now. And we should view it to some extent through the lens of generosity and make an effort to reward the people who are giving us all this amazingness. Because things like Patreon are actually really interesting. For some creators, they are making a meaningful difference to them. Mm. Um, they, you know, and so I can, part of me can see a way of us moving slowly to a generosity economy where creators create and give, and we respond with gratitude and, and, and with money. I could say, I, I found that one of the most in, inspiring and persuasive parts of the book, like the idea you know, that, that, that there could be a whole new type of economy, there could be a gift economy where that happens, and, and yeah, you get rewards in unconventional ways, but they're very tangible rewards. I, I, I think that that's a persuasive argument. You know, I do worry about the, the sharks out there, but that is a, and it's happened, you know, there's been great ripples from TED Talks. People have set up their own events and the ripples continue. Yeah. So, I mean, some people have made it work, many others still. It's, it's a huge struggle, and there are far more people struggling trying to make a living this way than, than not. But, but I still think that even for those people, the, taking the risk of giving away something big and bold and surprising. The problem with the, with the internet is, you know, there's so much noise. To get something to go viral, you have to do something surprising that cuts through it. And it's possible that by doing that, you will suddenly get a lot greater attention from a lot more people that will build an audience that will allow you to provide your regular business in some way. It's, it's a different story in each case. Mm. Um, but what I do know is that in all the noise, there are many examples of amazing generosity happening where people have done extraordinary work and they've just decided to share it with the world. And, and we're, all, we're all beneficiaries of that. Mm. Including them? I think including them. I think including them. Mm. Um, I think, I, and you're right, I mean, people are doing well on Substack and, and Patreon and, and so on. But I, but I do think it's only certain sorts of people. It's, it's people who produce a lot of stuff. Like, you, you, if you're paying £50 a year, you want, you want stuff in your feed once or twice a week. Mm. I think for people like me, who, you know, Joe Rogan produces three hours of content a day, I produce three hours of content a year. So I think for people like me, who's, you know, like a dollhouse maker, it's maybe yeah. harder. It's going to be harder to get people yeah. to subscribe. Those three hours are pretty cool, though. I, I mean, they aren't, like, no, seriously, and talking about cutting through the noise, so your three hours, if I, if I heard the numbers right, have attracted an audience of over, like, five million for, for some of your latest podcasts. Five million people. That is astonishing. That is because you have become one of the most talked about podcasts out there. If you cut your effort back by, say, 40%, I don't think your audience would be down 40% from that. It might be a tenth of that. Mm. It's the, the, the amazing thing about virality is that, that everything hangs on getting to that lift-off point. Um, and it, you know, if, if 10 people spread word to 11 people, as opposed to 9 people, the difference between those two scenarios is 10,000-fold. And so that incremental 20% of effort is the key. And for those of us who, who are in the business of wanting to spread good stories online, kindness, and so forth, 
everything hangs on trying to be smart about directing it to how do you do something that isn't just worthy and nice, but takes people's breath away. Yes. Well, that takes me to my next area of questioning, um, how to make acts of generosity go viral. You say, um, let's be generous in a way that gives people goosebumps, making generosity go viral. Uh, and, and an example you give, you give two examples of, of when it's done right and when it's done wrong. And, and a very good example you give about when it's done right is Mr. Beast. Um, now, for people in the audience who, aren't, who don't know, I mean, Mr. Beast is like one of the most popular people on the internet right now, right? Can you explain for people who, who don't know, like, what does he do and why is it successful? I mean, Mr. Beast is a YouTube influencer. His name's Jimmy Donaldson. Since he was a teenager, he was obsessed with YouTube and with a group of friends, took it on himself to figure out, to crack the code, basically, of what it takes to make successful videos. They obsessed over every single aspect of editing, every frame, um, the title of videos, the images that go with it. And, and just the boldness of idea, the storytelling. And so he he's creates these crazy, audacious, fantastic scenarios of you know, just something outrageous. Here's a huge car dealership that I've set up where people come in and they buy a car and then they're told that the price for it is $50. And, and you film their reaction. And, and those sort of jaw-dropping reactions, turns out that attracts a lot of views. So, so many of his, his videos, I mean, some of them are just outrageous sort of competition games between um, different people, but they're all done in a spirit of fun. And many of them involve kindness, compassion, what we traditionally call charity. He's got a video on how a thousand people were given their sight with cataract surgery that he paid for and the impact that that made on them. So, the videos are incredible. You watch them, you, you can't help but get emotional, which is one reason why they, they, they go viral. Now, of course, he's attracted a storm of critics because you're only doing it for the views. Call this kindness, mate. Come on, you're exploiting these, these blind people. Give them their blindness back. <laughs> um, the, it, what people miss is, I mean, look, th there are kindness videos out there that are exploitative, where literally people are ambushed and have some kind act thrust mm. on them and they cry and then they feel exploited. Um, I think he's the real deal. I've spoken to the man who runs his philanthropy um, and um, he, he, he's in this for the long term to do good for the world. And when you look at the numbers and when you talk to people in the next generation who are so inspired by him, what you realize is that here is a guy who has flouted what has been the traditional way to make a big audience in social media. The way we thought was to spout doom and gloom, to spout hatred, to pour crap on the other side. Mm. Not for him. His way is to spread amazingness. And he is, he is persuading a whole generation of kids that kindness can be cool. Mm. So I'm very excited by that. I think there's re he is exhibit A in the argument that what, however our generation does, I should say mine, not, I'm older than you, but however badly we do, there's a generation coming through that is sick of the meanness of the world, wants no part of it, wants to figure out 
better ways. And he's, he's exhibit A in that, and he's inspired many others to follow suit. Right. And yeah, it is. And, and I've read articles of people trying to find fault, trying to find, you know, darkness in his past, or, and, and have come up empty-handed. So right now, Mr. Beast does seem to be a, a pretty, you know, beloved and uncontroversial figure. As you say, though, like a whole load of Mr. Beast copyists have come along and like, run up to people on the street and given them flowers. And then, and then they come out and say that, you know, that, was, that they felt exploited and you know, emotionally manipulated. So how come people doing something almost identical to what Mr. Beast is doing are doing it badly? Like, what's the difference? Is it, is it just integrity and, and authenticity? I mean, one, one guardrail is what is the reaction of the people on the other end of the video? Do they feel respected? Are they glad that they participated? Are they glad this event happened? Do they feel delight? Um, so I, I'd say that's probably the number one test. If they feel exploited, then you're doing something wrong. Mm. Um, so maybe Mr. Beast is just better at it. Like maybe he's just put more hours into, in, into being good at it. He, he's figured out that you can be both genuinely kind and generous and really exciting and interest. This is, the, this is the code we have to crack. You know, the fundamental problem of media, ever since I was, you know, I'm media entrepreneur, whatever, the fundamental problem has always been, how do you make good things not boring? Mm. It's not fair that the bad things are more interesting. Yeah. It's not fair that that is the way to win an audience. Damn it, you know, how can you fight that? Well, we have to fight it, and he's figured out one way to fight it. And I think his playbook can be adopted in different ways by many other people. Yeah. And, uh, and is. And you're not, worried, you're not worried that he's an anomaly. Because, uh, you know, you're still in a world, you know, when you talk to YouTube, sort of Joe rogan type people, they'll always say that if they have somebody nuanced on, then they get like 10,000 views. But if they have somebody who says that, you know, woke people are a death cult, they get <laughs> half a million views. Yeah, that, definitely a problem. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's this kid who I spoke to who was inspired by Mr. Beast. He's, he's in his 20s. He's called Milad Merck. He's a TikTok influencer. And he was, he was disgusted by this trend that was happening on TikTok of food waste, of huge amounts of food being dumped. Look at the mess I made in my parents' kitchen. Ha, ha, ha. Um, he thought, I know. He got huge amounts of peanut butter, huge amounts of jelly, huge amounts of bread and turned it into handmade sandwiches and wrapped them up and took them on the streets and gave them to people and videoed it. And his video was seen far more times than the trend he was combating. He, he, he single-handedly turned that trend around. And I spoke to him, John, and he said, look, it's not actually symmetric. Any emotion will go viral. You kick someone and film it, it's gonna go viral. But it doesn't last. People think you're a dick. You can be a dick for a day and be famous, or you can work a little bit harder and try and do something that does good, that spreads emotion, and then you'll be remembered and you can build something. Mm. And many of us, he said to me, are interested in building something. So I, I think I was as inspired by him as by any conversation I've had. It's not, this is a fight we can actually win. Mm. And if we don't, they're going to. Um, you had an experiment that you wanted to do on the audience. I think now might be a good interlude for the experiment. <laughs> it was, it's to do with non-financial acts of generosity. Right, 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 right. So giving money is, you know, what, often what we think of with generosity, but um, there, there are so many non-financial ways to give, and they all start with just a shift of attention. 
It's, it's the shift of attention away from ourselves to someone else. It's always a little bit awkward. You know, you know that feeling, you're walking down the street and there's someone, should I talk to that person? I, I'm kind of busy and someone else can and I don't want to create dependency, heaven forbid. So, you know, we usually walk on by and stay in our zone. But let's try this. Um, what you're gonna do is you're gonna turn to someone who you don't know, just, just pair up, and you're going to look at each other. Don't do it yet. You're going to look at each other into each other's eyes for... I'm so glad I don't need to do this. <laughs> <laughs> you can look into my eyes, John, anytime you want. The, um, um, for 20 seconds, it will feel like an eternity. And you'll see each other. And after seeing each other, you will ask each other just this one question. Is there something that you need right now? And you can answer that in just a sentence or two, any way you want to, your personal life or business or whatever it is, but just short. And you'll each do that. And then probably nothing more will happen, except just possibly in a few cases, some of you, after this thing is done, will think of some way to continue and maybe talk more about that need and maybe something will happen. I just love experiments about infectious generosity and it all starts with just seeing someone, paying attention, and being willing to go through that awkwardness. It's going to be 20 awkward seconds, and then magic, I promise you, can happen. So let's try this. Pair up. Pair up. <laughs> and then we're going to go quiet. Pair up, and then shh. OK. The 20 seconds is starting. The 20 seconds is starting now. Shh. Okay. Now um, just take turns and ask and answer that question. <laughs> This is amazing. People are really doing it. Okay, flip sides, flip sides, other way. Ten seconds. Okay. For those of you who wish to continue this after the event, um, if anything happens from this, I would love it if you email me. I'm chris at ted.com. Just email me and tell me what, what happens, and we'll find maybe some way of amplifying a few of the stories. Um, but you felt it, right? You felt that awkwardness, and you felt the magic of connecting with another person. It all, it all starts there. It all starts there. After that, all bets are off. <laughs> that was great. I think everyone did it, right? I, I, so, I, once again, I'm the most socially awkward person in the room. Because <laughs> there's no way I would. I, I, if I was in that audience, I would not have done that. I'd have found a way to not do it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. 
This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's more of that discussion in part two, waiting to be dug into for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and get it all in one go, or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.